Morning, church. Your teaching text today comes from 1 Samuel 17, verses 17 through 53. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of the supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughters in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, He burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave these few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? Then he turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and, with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, 
the God, of the, gar- the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from its sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged, toward, surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. So glad to be, uh, to be back this morning. Uh, a few years back, Malcolm Gladwell used um, this, uh, this famous tale from the Hebrew Scriptures uh, as the title and opening illustration uh, for his book on underdogs and, um, and adversity and, and in typical Gladwellian fashion, um, how we might not be seeing those things uh, as we should or as we could. So uh, here's how he begins, and if, you're, if you'll pardon me, I'm just going to read it because I think it sets the scene, scene well. At the heart of ancient Palestine is the region known as the Shephelah, a series of ridges and valleys connecting the Judean mountains to the east with the wide, flat expanse of the Mediterranean plain. It is an area of breathtaking beauty, home to vineyards and wheat fields and forests of sycamore and terebinth. It is also of great strategic importance. Over the centuries, numerous battles have been fought for control of the region because the valleys rising from the Mediterranean plain offer those on the east a clear path to the cities of Hebron, Bethlehem, and Jerusalem in the Judean highlands. The most important valley is Ayalon in the north, but the most storied is Elah. The Elah is where, the, is where Saladin faced off against the Knights of the Crusades in the 12th century. It played a central role in the Maccabean Wars with Syria more than a thousand years before that. And most famously, during the days of the Old Testament, it was where the fledgling kingdom of Israel squared off against the armies of the Philistines. The Philistines were from Crete. They were a seafaring people who had moved to Palestine and settled along the coast. The Israelites were clustered in the mountains under the leadership of King Saul. In the second half of the 11th century BCE, the Philistines began moving east, winding their way upstream along the floor of the Elah Valley. Their goal was to capture the mountain ridge near Bethlehem and split Saul's kingdom in two. The Philistines were battle-tested and dangerous and the sworn enemies of the Israelites. Alarmed, Saul gathered his men and hastened down from the mountain to confront them. The Philistines set up camp along the southern ridge of the Elah. The Israelites pitched their tents on the other side along the northern ridge, which left the two armies looking across the ravine at each other. Neither dared to move. To attack meant descending down the hill and then making a suicidal climb up the enemy's ridge on the other side. Finally, the Philistines had enough. They sent their greatest warrior down into the valley to to resolve the deadlock in one-on-one combat. If you've heard two stories from the Bible 
I bet one of them was David and Goliath. Uh, even someone who's never read the text itself probably has some frame of reference for it as a sports metaphor, rock, you know, the Rocky story, March Madness every year. There's a David and Goliath type of matchup. Uh, we, we know it in terms of an underdog still having a fighting chance. Uh, Gladwell, I think, uh, if you want to read the, the beginning of the, uh, where he deals with David and Goliath, it's in his book, David and Goliath. And uh, he puts some really interesting things out there, presents some interesting research as he's prone to do. I don't actually agree with how certain he is on some of his conclusions about Goliath. Uh, but one of the most interesting things he puts forward, I think one of the most uh, interesting pieces of background information um, that he presents has to do with the different types of warriors that would have been present in a battle like this in, in, in ancient history. He makes the point that these two armies that are gathered on this ridge along the Elah Valley, that they would have had three types of warriors um, in, the, in, in their ranks. The first was the cavalry. Uh, which is, this is men on horsebacks or men in chariots, I'm imagining with these two sort of tribal situations and not very much power or wealth amidst the two nations at this point. There might not not have been that many chariots, but the cavalry would have been armed men on horseback. The second group of warriors was the infantry. The infantry were foot soldiers. They were armed with with, uh, armor and they had had weapons. Uh, Goliath is, uh, is in that camp. And the third were projectile warriors or what today we would call the artillery. These are archers, uh, or in, in Israel's case and, and in the Philistines' case, in this, in this instance, often slingers, uh, so those who would use slingshots and stones. So Goliath is a more than imposing infantry soldier. This is what makes the story so compelling, is that he looks absolutely unbeatable when you, when you, when you look at him. He was massive. He was wearing over 100 pounds of armor. Uh, he had a special spear with weights that's, that's mentioned, if you pay attention to sort of the description of him, that he could throw and the, and the weights would close together and add extra, extra force. I don't actually know the physics on ancient javelin spears, but um, apparently it was so strong that with someone like, Goliath's strength behind it. It could pierce any armor that the Israelite soldiers would have been would have been wearing. So you can see where they were a little bit reluctant to sort of climb down, uh, you know, climb down the, the the ridge and 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 go forward and uh, and challenge and challenge Goliath. Gladwell points out some other historical instances where this single combat duel format was used to settle a conflict between two different armies. Um, Goliath is utterly mockingly confident in his ability at one-on-one combat. There is no foot soldier in Israel's armor that he needs to fear whatsoever. He comes out into the valley for 40 days. Now we read these sentences in the scriptures and we just move past them and like there's a whole host, like a week's worth of details in one sentence. But I just want you to think about 40 days in a row. You get up out of your tent You realize where you are, you're not at home, you're sleeping in a tent, you get out, you put your armor on, you go to to line up with with your your cousins and your family and and your tribe and you see the tribe uh, next to you lined up on the ridge as well and all of you are looking over into the valley, maybe the sun is just coming up and there he is again, Goliath, day after day, utterly mockingly confident in his ability to defeat anyone that Israel would put forward. The only thing he wasn't accounting for was Israel's God and the fact that David had a 45 caliber weapon. Um, 
David was on an errand from his dad and he was bringing food for his brothers and he was supposed to bring back a report on their, on their status. This is all, all in the text. While he's on this errand, David witnesses Goliath's mocking challenge. He, he hears uh, this, this champion from the Philistines go out and throw down his, uh, his, his challenge. David wasn't in the army, maybe he was too young altogether, but we know that he was in charge of his family's livestock. The story mentions that he had to leave the sheep in, in the charge of someone else uh, while, he, while he came on, on this errand. But David is immediately, like 40 days have happened and all of these trained soldiers, these warriors, have gone out and listened to Goliath's challenge and haven't been willing to move. And David shows up with like his 10 loaves of bread and his cheese platter and he's like, I've got the charcuterie, where should I go? And they're like, check this guy out. He's challenging us and David's like, let's go find him immediately. Just like, and everyone's sort of like, hang on, <laughs> settle down, David. Um, and he ends, up, he ends up citing two reasons for his confidence. And it's so basically matter of fact that the, the details of the text are he immediately, upon hearing Goliath's challenge, is sort of indignant and says, I can, I can take this guy. The first is God. The first reason he seems confident is, is God. God, God's reputation, God's faithfulness is on the line. David was a, a student of the, the history of Israel himself. And he, he truly, maybe like in a childlike fashion, he truly believed the stories of his people and, and, and how Yahweh in the most unbelievable you know, set of obstacles and circumstances had come through for them again and again and again and again. So in a childlike faith, he's just like, God's reputation, God's faithfulness is on the line. I'm utterly confident that we can, we can handle this. The other was that he had faced some fearsome beasts in his own, like, near past, and he had succeeded. He had, he, God, with God's help, he had won before. So I'm gonna pause here for just a moment because you read the text. You kind of know where the story's going. This is like walking into to, you know, to the movie The Titanic. You, you know the ship's gonna sink. You know where we're headed. Um, but I wanna tell you why we're looking at this story today. And quite honestly, I've spoken on David and Goliath before, and there's t you know, the, the word of God is living and active, is sharper than any two-edged sword. There's tons to be learned from re-looking at a story. But when we outlined this series, I didn't have David and Goliath in there. It was another text I was preparing to speak on this, this, this week, but as I was praying, God, would you show me what you want to say to our congregation this week? What's the prophetic word that you have for someone in our, in our midst or for our congregation as a whole? I just kept randomly having this moment in this story come popping into my mind, and it happened not, not once, twice, but like three or four times enough. I was like, finally, fine, God, you don't like my other cool sermon? Let's, let's check out your story. Fine. So... Um, I, I went to read this story, and the section that was in my mind over and over again is when David tells Saul, who's very reasonably doubting whether David should go out and face Goliath, um, when David tells him the reasons why he thinks he should. So this is what he says. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has, has killed both the lion and the bear, this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David said to Saul, go and the Lord be with you. Now, if I'm a shepherd and a lion comes and takes a sheep, I'm just marking that in the ledger, down one sheep. <laughs> Super bummer. 
I got the rest of the sheep though, let's move along to an, an area where there are no lions. Same thing with a bear. Bear comes and gets a sheep, congratulations, you're eating and we're moving. There's, that's it, that's the end of the story. David is the most diligent shepherd ever. What is he doing chasing lions and bears? Anyway. But as I was praying, this section of the story kept coming into my mind. And, and I don't know exactly, like, of course, I don't know exactly what God might want to speak to you as an individual, to us as a church about this. But I want to be faithful in wading in and saying, I don't know exactly, but I also don't want to ignore the fact that I, I sense we were meant to meditate on this for just a minute. I can't help but wonder, though, if God doesn't have some particular word for someone here today from this section of the story, or, or maybe truly for us as a whole church. And I was thinking about it. Perhaps God has you or has us uh, in a season of preparation or has brought you through a season of preparation. And in the same way that he has taught you in sort of an out-of-the-way place, maybe a place that doesn't have the spotlight, maybe a place that's in the quiet or the, or the solo uh, you know, space with, with, with you and God, in the same way that he's delivered us and taught us in those previous moments, maybe those are the ways that he's, he's showing us that we can count on him and that, that, that he's inviting us into wild confidence <laughs> in what is, is next for us. Maybe, maybe the reason God redirected this, this, this sermon's you know, sort of trajectory was because there's someone here, us as a whole, that needs to be made aware of the fact that like, what you've been going through is not just meaningless, but it's part of the preparation God, God has for you in your life and what he's eventually gonna call you into, the anointing that he has on your life, the, the invitation into a, a, a wider place or, or a place where, where, where you're, you're meant to access a victory that you've never had before, that the preparation from before is gonna play a role in that. Like, that's actually a guess, but there it is. There's my guess. So, so I'm going to draw attention to a few things in this story, but I really want you to pray uh, as, we, as we go. Anytime you want to tune me out, you can pray and say, God, is there something you want to speak to me from that section where David says, I killed a lion, I killed a bear, and that gives me confidence that I can go and face this impossible obstacle in my way. So uh, one thing we have to know, right, is, is we sort of tell these, these stories to kids, and it's, it's basically like, um, you know, J Jonah was a prophet, and he ran off, and he got swallowed by a fish, and maybe the bile from the fish, you know, dyed his hair a crazy color, and then he had to go to Nineveh anyway, and don't run away from God, right? And that's the story. And we tell David and Goliath, it's like, David was huge and tall, and, Go and, and or Goliath was huge and tall, and David was short, and so if you're short, it doesn't matter. you still got a purpose in life, okay? This is sort of... This is how we tell the stories. It's like it's only about one small theme, which is like courage in the face of something. But this is a story that's not just about an underdog sneaking out a win. This, this story is connected to the deep themes of the kingdom of God coming in the world, the presence of God refilling the world after the brokenness of the story in Eden. This is a story about God's faithfulness. It's a story about God teaching us to trust him. It's about one era changing, right, the era of King Saul to the era of King David, and what those two eras represent in Israel is very profound and very, very meaningful. It's about the kingdom of God advancing in the world. It's about a presence-driven people loving the presence of God in their midst. And it, actually, it's even about Jesus, who at this point was to come. So this story that we are reading takes place in 1 Samuel 17. In 1 Samuel 16, 
The prophet Samuel, who has been actually at this point receding from public prominence since he's anointed Saul, he was the judge over Israel and led them himself for a while, and now he's receding from public prominence, but God tells him, I've rejected Saul as king, I want you to go anoint another king over Israel, and he goes to the home of Jesse in Bethlehem to anoint a new king over Israel. Samuel, the story, you can read it yourself in in, uh, 1 Samuel 16, he goes through each of Jesse's sons, expecting one after the other to surely be the choice. And finally, it's, it's one who's not even there. David is out tending the sheep. He's like, are there any other sons? You got any other kids here? He's like, yeah, one, but he's, he, he, he's not the one. And they're, they're bringing him in. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to this, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Our city might celebrate the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. It is possible to exhaust yourself tending primarily to the outward appearance, and the Lord looks at the heart. It is possible to adjust our filters and zoom in on the best angle of ourself and put forward a story of our best moments, and yet the Lord looks at the heart. So, if we track the story of Israel's history at this point, as as I mentioned before, God is transitioning from the leadership of Saul, who was a man who absolutely looked the part. It says that there was no one more handsome than Saul in all the land. He was a head taller. If if you're like, all right, we're gonna look at this group of people, who should be the king? It's definitely him. It's definitely Saul. Look at him. He's taller. He's great looking. He he seems strong. He's the guy. Saul's the guy. So, We're transitioning from Saul's leadership to a man who was obsessed with the presence of God. And I use the word obsessed there uh, truthfully. And in the best possible way, David was a man who was obsessed with God's presence. Who, if you, like we we have the the, uh, ability to look in his journal, his songbook is, is the Psalms. And so many of them are his heart pouring out to God, pouring out to Yahweh, longing for his presence as a deer pants for the, for the waters, as a deer pants for the stream, an animal that's dying, longing for water, dying of thirst. That's how much I long for God. This is, this is the heart of David. And he, we know from the arc of his story, he's not a perfect man at all. Man, many great sins in David's life. He's a, he's a violent man, but he loves God's presence. He was far from perfect, but we're, God is transitioning Israel from from a man who looked the part in Saul to a man who was obsessed, who loved his presence, who was full of faith. I want you to have that anointing in your mind as we look through the rest of the story because David's gonna face a bunch of different obstacles. The obvious one is Goliath, but a couple of others along the way that that might be easy to zoom through. We're just gonna hit them for a second. But I want you to keep in mind that David has received this anointing and this is a transition in his life. This, this moment with Goliath is going to propel him to the place that God had anointed him to be in. It's also a crucial moment for the story of Israel, but it's a, it's, it's a massive moment in David's story. I want you to hold that in your mind as, as we move through. So 
A couple of obstacles that he faces that aren't the obvious one, which is the huge giant champion that's in the valley for 40 days. Um, the, the first thing uh, from David's perspective that I want you to notice that he has to overcome uh, while he's walking, right, well, keeping this in his mind, while he's walking into this anointing, God has said, this is your future. This is what I'm calling in, you into. This is a promise that I have made, right? And we're on a, in a series this summer on God's faithfulness. And what we're trying to get is to that crucible moment in our own hearts where we say, okay, this is what God has promised, and yet my my experience seems to be something different. How do I follow God's promises through my moods, through my experiences, and into the realization of what God has said is going to be true? This is what David is in the middle of doing in this story. And the first thing he faces is accusation, right? You, 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 you notice this moment? Verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can I even speak? Now, this is a rising action detail in the story, right? Everybody knows we're going to where the ship sinks. We're going to, we're going to the fight at the end. That's where we're headed. So it's so easy to, to sort of blister past a detail like this. <coughs> but I've just been in the car with brothers on several family road trips, and I want to tell you the pain in this exchange is real. Right, there are family layers coming out. This is how they argued in the car going to Pennsylvania to the Poconos for years, okay? This is, David's response is pretty natural. Like, uh, he, he flips out, but honestly, so is Eliab's frustration, right? Can you imagine 40 days in a row he's gotten up, like he's out there. This could be the day that we die. And I've just dressed in my armor. I've gone out to the ridge. I've, I've listened to this guy mock our nation, mock us. No one's willing to climb down the ridge and fight him. We're in an absolute stalemate. And then this young, cocky kid, my younger brother, shows up. In 40 days, it apparently takes 21 to make a habit. We're past that by a lot, right? And then David just shows up with charcuterie. And he's like, I'll fight him. You just want to be like, shut up. That's the older brother, like, shut, shut up. And, and David says what younger brothers say, exactly. So can I even speak? Are there no words for me allowed in this home? You, like, if the parent is there, you always believe him. I brought this cheese for you, Nothing. So, right, we know what that feels like. And it's so easy to skip over the details, but I don't want you to miss the pain, even for just a moment if we meditate on it, the pain of hearing your oldest brother, who you certainly would have looked up to, someone that you would have, like a gatekeeper in your life. This is someone who opens the door of opportunity, that, that, uh, that makes things possible for you, that's, that's, that's you know, sh shown you how to, how to move about in the world, that has helped you understand your, your place in Israel, or your place in your family. And Eliab turns to him and absolutely eviscerates him and shuts him down and, and levels this accusation at him. And it's amusing for us to move past quickly, but when you have that happen to you, it's so demoralizing, 
Right? I want you just to see if you can think about, imagine the emotional space when someone comes at you and attacks your motives. Someone comes at you and questions your very character. The only reason you're here is because you're conceited. You think this is all about you, right? We can have that happen from people, right? We can also have that happen sort of in the ticker tape of our, of our, of our mind's thoughts, right? I'm never gonna be enough. This is, right? Or, or always constantly second-guessing in ourselves and questioning ourselves. And so before he even gets to this monster in the valley, David has to face accusation from someone that, that, that he loves. I just don't want you to miss that detail. The second obstacle that I want us to notice comes in the next little bit of text, verse 30. He says, he turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. When David, uh, what David said was overheard and reported to Saul and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You were only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. So first he deals with the accusation of his, his older brother Eliab and now he deals with doubt from Saul. And Saul is in a place of absolute authority. He can say yes or no as to whether or not David is allowed to, to go forward. Many of you have experienced this, right? You meet a gatekeeper in your field or you meet someone in a relationship and, and like they have the power to stop what you're longing for from happening. They have the power to say, to say no, right? You, you believe that you're moving in obedience to what God has called you to. Maybe you believe that you're, that you're actually particularly anointed for some vocation that God has put you in the world to do. And, and, and you run up against being shut down by someone who really matters doubt. And it's immensely painful, right? You move past accusation, but then you come up against someone who's, who's saying, you absolutely, think about it for just a minute. This guy has been a warrior since he was your age, and you're your age. You're, you're a child. You have no chance against him. Saul had one way of looking at the situation, the way of appearances, and he didn't have, he didn't have access in this moment whether he did before or after this, he didn't have access in this moment to another stream of influence in his mind. And so he was only able to see the story from one perspective. And he says, this kid stands no chance. And then we come to the part that kept repeating in my mind as I was praying about this. This is the expression of David's confidence. I'm gonna give it to you one more time because it kept being reminded to me, so I don't know who this is for. But, but David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Now what exactly happens in that little exchange? Because in the beginning, he's like, nah, I don't think you can do it. He's a fierce warrior and you're a child. And then David gives a few sentences of explanation and Saul, the king, who's battle-tested himself, says, yeah, you can go and the Lord be with you. What, what's going on? I, I believe this is true for, for David and for many of you that you will find some dynamic equivalence in your own life that there are times when you're walking into the very thing that God has for, for you, something that is connected to what God has anointed you to do. You face accusation, sometimes from people very dear to us. You face doubt. 
Some, oftentimes from a gatekeeper, someone in authority who has the power to say yes or no to you moving forward, what is going to keep you going in those moments? For David, what he cites in, this, in these few sentences of his explanation was that he had developed a practice of counting on Yahweh and that Yahweh had a practice of developing David in his alone, in his alone time, in his vocation practice off to the side, in solo moments where no one was watching. And then this is the thing that I think gets Saul, is David was a slinger. Essentially, in those categories of warriors that we went over, he wasn't cavalry, he wasn't infantry, he was a projectile warrior. He was trained, even if he wasn't officially sanctioned by the army at this point, he was trained as a projectile warrior. Now, when I read this story as a kid, and David talks about fighting the lion and the bear, I just picture him like a maniac chasing the animal down, cracking it over the head, and then it turns on him, he's like wrestling with, this is how I picture this. David is an absolute insane man. He's chasing, leave the sheep, it's one sheep. Maybe he was an insane man, but he's telling Saul, I'm a different type of warrior. And Saul believes him. He, he basically says, I know this doesn't look good, but I've been training for years and God is on my side and I'm deadly accurate with this sling. I've killed a lion with this sling. I've killed a bear with this sling. And if you'll let me go out, I can kill this guy, Goliath. Gladwell in his book says, slinging took an extraordinary amount of skill and practice. But in experienced hands, the sling was a devastating weapon. Paintings from medieval times show slingers hitting birds in mid-flight. Irish slingers were said to be able to hit a coin from as far away as they could see it. And in the Old Testament book of Judges, slingers are described as being accurate within a hair's breadth. An experienced slinger could kill or seriously injure a target at a distance of up to 200 yards. Now that changes the, the story a little bit for me. It's like, it's not just like this guy's short and this guy's tall and short people matter in God's kingdom. It's like this guy has a weapon that he can shoot him in the head with. It to, it's like, yeah, it's that moment in Indiana Jones where the guy does all the karate and then Indiana Jones just like shoots him. Like, that's it. That's the, whole, that's, the whole, that's the whole thing. Goliath is huge and fierce and a killer and he's stronger than David, but David has a gun. One of the Jewish commentaries on this story said it's, a, it's basically like the equivalent of having a 45 caliber handgun at his disposal in this duel. So he moves through the accusations, he moves through the doubts, and he's able to convince Saul, the battle-tested king of Israel, who everyone knew as a fierce warrior himself, I can do this. And the reason is I've been training. God has been teaching me how to operate in this, in this other way. And so he goes into this battle in an unconventional way Right? They were supposed to cross swords. David has no stake in like the, 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 the manners of warfare. He doesn't go up and cross swords with Goliath. Goliath, there's a debate as to whether he could see him properly. He's like, come over here. What are you coming at me with a stick? And then David shoots him, basically. Shoots him in the head. He falls down. He cuts his head off. We know the obstacles that David has had to move through, accusation and doubt. And now Saul basically says, okay, you're gonna go, that's fine, God be with you, now put my armor on. He still doesn't quite get it. In, in verse 38, he gives him this sort of cultural expectation. Here's the way we do it, okay? If you're gonna go, I'm gonna let you go, but here's the way we do it. It's like he didn't even let what David say sink in. Then Saul dressed him in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried to walk around because he was not used to these. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Some of you know exactly what this is like. 
we're only in here, you know, an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes, a, a, a week together, right? You're, you're out in the stream of New York City, in the stream of Brooklyn, you know, absorbing a million cultural messages every, every single day. Like, we talk about the power of what it is to come together to work. Like, not all time is, is equal, and I'm grateful for that, right? There, there's something significant when we gather together as a church and we pray, we confess our hearts to God, we direct the attention of our affections to God, we come to the table together, we remember his broken body and his shed blood, this covenant of grace. What we're doing to, together is counterformation. It is, it is saying we're pushing back on the messages that we receive, the message of, of radical individualism, the, re, the message that, that our, our meaning and comfort comes from our status at our job or our possessions, right? That, that the main thing we need to be about is, is sex and money and power, and those things are going to be the deepest, most meaningful. And, and so there's so many cultural expectations. You guys know what it's like to, to be wearing Saul's armor all week, <laughs> because that's what's expected of you, and to come into a place, and it's, it's so difficult to get, to get used again to how we operate as God's children, that we're operating on an entirely different paradigm. David's faced accusation, he's, he's faced doubt, doubt, and he also faces these, these cultural expectations that we might not immediately label as something negative, but it's how the world expects you to operate, not taking God into account at all, or the way God has made you, or the way God has trained you. He's moved through the accusations, he's moved through the doubt, and now these cultural expectations, this obvious solution, the armor, he has to take off. And then finally he does, he goes to the enemy of the people. And by this point, we, we know what's gonna happen. Goliath is truly an imposing danger. <laughs> he kept the people, at, at, an entire army at bay in fear of coming down to face him. From the ridges of the Valley of Elah, Goliath was an impossible foe. He was huge and intimidating and experienced and confident and armed to the teeth. He was like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. From the ridge, he looked unbeatable. To David, he was just a man who didn't have a gun. He was just a man with no sling. He was loud and commanding and fierce to look at. He held a whole army captive in fear, but he was on the wrong side of the movement of God. He was on the wrong side of the anointing of God. God was moving Israel to be led by a man who loved him more than anything else. He was ending the rule of Saul, who was handsome and a head taller and would have been in the magazines and would have inspired confidence just by looking at him. He was ending the rule of Saul because he was not a man who would obey God. He was a man who shifted on accusation, who moved by doubt, who acquiesced to cultural expectations and wouldn't cling to the anointing that God had placed on his life, who wouldn't trust Yahweh and worship him passionately. David walks into this victory. He throws the stone. He hits Goliath in the one place that he's uncovered in his forehead. And I don't know if it instantly killed him or he was dazed, but he falls down and David takes his own sword and decapitates him and wins a battle that the whole nation shares in. David walked into this victory and he essentially walks into his anointing, right? So much of our life as followers of, uh, uh, of Christ is living in the kingdom of God is we take a promise that God has made us and we, we activate and walk it out and live into it until we, it becomes our actual reality. And that process of, of walking that out, that process of faith 
is where we learn to trust God's character more than just our circumstances, more than just our moods. And let me tell you what a tremendous, freeing, uh, powerful, joy-giving life it is to be able to trust God's character and God's promises more than just your circumstances, more than just your moods. To have this, like Psalm 1, I'm a, a tree planted by a stream of water that doesn't lose, its, its leaf doesn't wither, it bears fruit in season because it's connected to something deeper, this ever-replenishing source of God's love and God's promises. David walked into his victory and his anointed, despite the odds, despite the cultural expectations, despite the doubts, despite the accusation. And he won this victory and the whole nation shares in it. I've been moving this year through uh, some of my favorite novels that I've read before. I'm rereading them again. I'm like, I know I like these. I'll read them again. One of them is East of Eden. Steinbeck in East of Eden says there's one story in the world, and we just keep repeating it. It certainly would help us if we could read the scriptures in that way and see that there are all these individual episodes, but there is also this overarching story. There is the one story that Yahweh is telling in the world. David was a great king in so many respects, but this, of course, is not the end of the story. This is, you know, happens early in, in the whole scope of the narrative. This happens early on. As a matter of fact, he, he, David was a man of violence. David was a, a man of great sins. This victory that he wins over the Philistines, they have to fight the Philistines again. So it wasn't a perpetual revolution. <laughs> like he wins against Goliath and the whole nation shares in it, but then they come back. And this is the thing that happens over and over again. But there's another man coming also from Bethlehem, also with an anointing. <laughs> David wasn't allowed to build God's temple, and when God gives him the reason why, he was obsessed with the presence of God. He's like, Yahweh, I want a house for you. I'm not going to sleep till I get a house for you built. He's like, you're not going to build it. Your hands are covered with blood, and, and the whole Bathsheba thing, that, that happened. So, but your son's going to build it. But even that, right, even that temple was temporary. It was destroyed. This victory was meaningful. It was temporary. The temple Solomon built was meaningful but temporary. But another one was coming from Bethlehem with an anointing. <laughs> he was going to face accusation. He was going to face doubt. He was going to have to cut against many cultural expectations. And then he was going to go out of the city and face an enemy of the people and win a victory that the whole nation, the whole people could share in. On the cross, Jesus faces the enemy of our souls, death itself in single combat. No one could scale down the ridges and go into that valley on our own. Jesus had an anointing as our savior. We, we actually get to see Jesus lying in bear moment the moment where he's tested. It's in the wilderness at the beginning of his, his ministry after he's anointed. And it says the Holy Spirit filled him. And this is the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness, into a solo place like where David was. And on his own, he's, he's tempted and tried. The lying and the bare moment in Jesus's life is when the enemy of our souls come and tempts him. With all the archetypes of human temptation, the very same things that all of us are like, come and meet this very real, very deep need of your life, but don't take God into account. That's essentially the, 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 the choice we're given. We can live in God's promises and God's anointing and God's kingdom, or we can try to meet the very deep needs of our life out of resources that don't take God into account. And in the wilderness, one by one, Jesus resists those temptations so that he's ready for the Goliath of death 
when he finally comes to the cross. Jesus goes to his own moment of debate right before the battle, the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's wrestling with the Father. He's like, is there any other way? Is there some sort of Saul's armor solution to this that I'm not seeing? And the Father says, no, there's no other way. So he goes out of the city and he faces the impossible foe and he wins a victory that all of us can share in. The temple that he is building, he says this, right? The temple that he is building is not one of stone, not one where his presence is separated by a thick curtain in the holiest of holies, but on the cross, the veil was torn. His presence is available to us all. There was an, a changing of the, of the era in Israel as David beats Goliath from Saul to a man obsessed with God's presence. As Jesus wins the victory on the cross, there's another changing of the era. The, the, the veil is ripped. The temple is no longer the place where we have to go to meet God, God's presence. God's presence is pouring out and filling. And when we come to Pentecost, what's happening is those first followers of Jesus become living, breathing temples themselves. And they're built together into this spiritual house that hosts the presence of God. You, Trinity Grace Park Slope are in the stream of that very inheritance. You are the temple of the living God. Whatever you think about your random regular week, God himself is like, I want to fill you. I want to anoint you. I am calling you through the doubt, through the accusation, through the cultural expectations, through the voice of the enemy in your own life, into your anointing as my son and daughter in the kingdom. I have victories for you to win that other people will have a share in. Because you are my sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ, who himself went out, won a victory that we all have a share in. And this is a perpetual revolution. It's not the violence of one single combat, but a putting to death, death. It is a personal, individual resurrection story that we celebrate and we, we, we blow streamers because it's the best thing ever and then we're joined together in this family and we're living as a creative minority in the world that's saying there's another way that cuts against the accusation and cuts against the doubt and cuts against the cultural expectation and even cuts against the enemy of our souls and says no, there's the way of life and life to the full. That's what Jesus promised. And it doesn't end. So I want to tell you, whatever you're actually facing, and this is such a preachery move, whatever you're facing, but seriously, the accusation, the doubt, the cultural expectation that you feel like you have to form to, the very enemy of our soul, Christ is offering us a victory. David was a picture of it. Christ is the fulfillment. And I want to tell you, he will prove faithful. I don't know if you're in that lion and bear preparation moment or you're walking out to Goliath or it's sometime afterwards, but he will prove faithful. That is the message of our summer. That is the message of our lives. He will prove faithful. Let me pray for you. Father, I wanna pray especially for those who their spirit really resonates with that moment of preparation that David had to go through with the lion and the bear. Or maybe someone whose heart just was beating a little bit faster when we spoke about that, that have been in an out-of-the-way place, being prepared in the same way that they've learned to trust you and be confident in you and even develop the skills that you've given them in that out-of-the-way place that you are calling them into something new. And I, I pray you just speak so clearly by your Holy Spirit to those who are in that category this morning.
You would just let them know that, that you see them. We just sang this morning, Lord, the joy of being known and loved. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would communicate to your church this morning that they are known and loved. God, I wanna pray for those who are facing accusation, who are, who are wrestling with others' doubts or maybe their own doubts, who are trying to fit into the norms of their career or their city or what's expected of them, those who are dealing with the enemy. God, you are able to carry David through all of those. I truly believe that you will prove faithful. I ask that you would show us by your Holy Spirit how each of us is to respond. Teach us, Lord, to truly trust in your, in your faithfulness. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.